Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in Tampa. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. In episode 50, we decided to talk a little baseball with the former head skipper of Kentucky baseball, Keith Madison. Coach Madison was the head coach of Kentucky from 1979 to 2003, compiling 737 wins. From his humble beginnings in Edmondson County to his professional baseball career with the Montreal Expos and the Cincinnati Reds, it only took one phone call to a Kentucky basketball legend that would bring Keith Madison to Lexington. We'll learn how difficult it was for Coach Madison to recruit to Kentucky and some of the discrepancies in recruiting when it comes to dealing with budgets and scholarships. Oscar and Coach Madison will cover all the bases in this episode, including the 1988 season in which the Cats were one win away from making it to the College World Series. And there's a story about Doug Flynn that the Big Blue Nation will find most interesting. He's the all-time winningest UK baseball coach. He's a member of the Kentucky High School Baseball Hall of Fame the University of Kentucky Hall of Fame, and the American Baseball Coaches Association Hall of Fame. However, his greatest achievement may be the influence he has had on so many student athletes that came through the University of Kentucky. Oscar's throwing the pitches, and Keith Madison's knocking them out of the park on this one. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's, and his guest, Coach Keith Madison. For an old guy from Edmondson County, you become maybe the second most famous person in 1978 when you took the Kentucky job. Of course, we know who the most famous one is. Well, I'm going to throw one at you, Oscar. Probably the most famous guy was a guy named Houchin who went into Mammoth Cave chasing a bear and discovered Mammoth Cave. <laughs> and when was that? Well, that was back in uh, the 1700 sometime, 1790-something or somewhere back in there. Bo Davenport brought his team up here, maybe save Kentucky high school basketball from the class system because at that point in time, the big schools in Louisville and Lexington were dominating the tournament. People said the little school would never win it. Edmonds County did. That's right. I was so proud of them. Uh, of course, I knew everybody. And I was actually in Lake Wales, Florida, coaching high school baseball at the time. And it's, it's, I remember where I was when JFK got shot. I remember where I was when uh, the Twin Towers went down. And I remember where I was when Evanston County won the state championship. What was it like growing up in Evanston County? Uh, the first house I remember living in, we had no indoor plumbing. Uh, we were very poor, but so was everybody else. So I didn't know we were poor. Uh, so uh, I, we lived uh, about four miles outside of Brownsville, and we lived on a little gravel road that went back to where my great-grandfather's farm was and all that. And uh, I still remember walking 
down that gravel road with my dad and also remember as a five and as a five-year-old walking down to our neighbor's house there was a preacher living next door to us and he worked a team of mules uh, and uh, I just got to know them real well and I would just walk down there and walk into their house and pull a chair up to the table and eat cornbread and beans with them you know it was it was that kind of area that kind of community and everybody knew everybody uh when when you went through uh adversity or illness or death in the family uh, the community went through it with you uh, large family <clears throat> i uh had have an older brother and older sister uh my dad uh came from a large family my mom came from a large family they all are from right there in in the Lindsayville, Sweden communities of Edmondson County, just north of Brownsville. We, we call it north of the river because the people south of the Green River are, are different than the people north of the Green River. And I know you're from a county that's like that too. It's just, and so, uh, you know, there was that rivalry. Uh, and we, we thought people from town, Brownsville, population 800, we thought they were snobby. Because they were from the town, and, and they thought you were. They thought we were country, <laughs> and and so uh, you know I, I I grew up to be honest with you, Oscar, that helped me athletically because I, I grew up with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I wanted to prove to the boys in Brownsville that I could play, and then when I got to high school, I wanted to prove to the boys from Bowling Green that I could play. Uh, high school, Edmondson County. Edmondson County High School. Sport sports. I played uh, basketball, baseball, ran track. Uh, we didn't have football. We were too small of a school to have football back then and too poor. You know, it cost a lot of money to equip those boys. I would have loved to have played football. My brother would have been a great football player because he had the strength and the speed and all that. But we just didn't have the opportunity. So we focused on what we could play. Did you always have a desire in high school and elementary school to continue on to college? I did. Uh, uh, neither one of my parents went to college, and they wanted me to go to college. Uh, so I, I, it was expected for some reason. I just expected to go to college, and my teachers uh, encouraged me. I had some great teachers. Uh, I struggled a little bit early in high school because I just all I wanted to do is play ball and hang out with my buddies, and and uh, I had a, I had an English teacher that that really challenged me and I'll never forget her and thankfully I had her as a sophomore junior and senior and she uh, she was tough and uh, she first thing she did she made me get involved in the school plays which I did not want to do not at all that was not my thing but she said hey you want to you want to play baseball this spring you're going to be in this in the school play and she told me one day she said you can be so much more than you're allowing yourself to be and she just would not give up on me. And finally, my junior and senior year, uh, I realized, hey, if I, if I am going to go to college, I better turn this around and start taking academics a little more seriously. And I did. Baseball-wise, what kind of a high school career did you have? Uh, average, to be honest with you. Uh, I, th I could throw really hard. I couldn't hit very well. I had a little power, but I couldn't hit for average. It was all or nothing. Uh, Pitching-wise, I, I knew pitching was my deal. And I threw really hard, but I was, I was wild. Uh, and, and 
something happened, Oscar. I, you know, I, I really can't explain it. But the last game I pitched in at Evanston County High School was against Litchfield High School, which is now Grayson County High School. Um, I was pitching against my cousin. And I, when I was warming up, my arm, maybe it was because it was warm and I'd finally gotten in shape, I don't know. But I was warming up, and, and one of the assistant coaches, I remember him going in the dugout before the game started and saying, guys, Keith is really throwing hard. He said, I, 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 I was a catcher at Murray State, and I, I don't know if I ever caught anybody throwing that hard. And uh, he, he said, if y'all score – a few runs for him, we're going to win this thing. It was the finals of the district tournament. And so, <clears throat> no, I'm sorry, it was the first game of the district tournament, and, and, and they were our rivals. And that kind of pumped me up, you know, for hearing him say that. It gave me confidence. So, this game that I pitched against my cousin, who he ended up pitching for Western Kentucky, it was a great game. Uh, it went into extra innings. It was an eight-inning game. And I struck out 22 hitters. I had never had a game like that before in my life. And and it was the fact that I, I was throwing pretty good, but I think my coaches helped me with the confidence, and I realized I can really do this. We lost the game. And the reason we lost the game is I, I had a good fastball, uh, didn't have a very good curveball. And the best hitter for Litchfield came up with a man on base. I walked a guy. He came up, and I thought, I better throw him a curveball. He's been seeing my fastball all day. I hung it, and he hit it out of the park. And to hit it out of the park at Edmondson County, we were hosting it, it was a blast. It was at least 400 feet with a wood bat, and he crushed it. And, and, and I, remember, I remember going home just never feeling as bad as I felt that day because I felt like I should have not thrown that pitch and we would have won the game. Sort of like the Kentucky player here recently. Yes. Had a two hit, had a one hitter going, I guess, and then a grand slam after three walks. Yeah. Um, were you uh, were you hoping to go to college on a scholarship, or you were just going to go to college regardless? You've never heard this before, but my dream was to play basketball for Adolph Rupp. That's what I really and, and you've heard that from me. I'm I'm being facetious. You've heard that from a lot of people. I really really wanted to do that because. I was one of those guys, Oscar, that grew up with listening to the games with my dad, and uh, listening to Claude Sullivan, and 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 my dad telling me, uh, "Yeah, this guy's good, but you should have seen Frank Ramsey play. You should have seen Johnny Cox play." I mean, and so uh, you know that I just and, and I, I practiced shooting basketball every day. I wasn't nearly good enough. I, I found out. Just a quick story. You'll find this interesting. Uh, uh, my senior year, we're playing in a in a Christmas basketball tournament up in Litchfield, and we played Louisville Shawnee High School, and uh, it's the first time I'd ever played against a big city school. Well, Louisville Shawnee had a player by the name of Tom Payne on the team. This guy was seven foot tall. The guy that guarded me was six foot three, and I was six foot. And not only could I not score, I couldn't even get a shot off. I mean, this guy was taller, longer, quicker, and I couldn't get a shot off. So we got beat pretty good. So the next day my baseball coach walked up to me in the gym. I'll never forget this. 
and he just pointed his finger at me and said, baseball. <laughs> so I knew then I better I better hook my my wagon to the baseball star, not the basketball star. So after your senior year at Edmondson County, did you get drafted? I did not get drafted. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was still kind of hanging on to that basketball dream, and um, I, I I actually um, really thought I could still play college basketball. So I didn't get recruited. I mean, I remember getting a letter from Larry Conley. Larry Conley was a young assistant coach at George Washington University. And I, that was one of the proudest moments of my life to that point because I was a huge Larry Conley fan. I watching him play. I just loved the way he played the game, the way he could penetrate and pass and great assist guy and all that, leader. Uh, so anyway uh, – I, when I got that letter from him uh, late in my senior year, I thought, hey, I'm, I'm going to play college basketball. That didn't work out. Uh, so I'm playing Legion baseball uh, after school's out for Bo the Bowling Green Legion team. Still hadn't got any scholarship offers, and I was just planning on maybe trying to walk on in baseball at either Western or Murray State. So I go to my Legion coach, a guy by the name of Mike Cobb, who I still stay in touch with, and he said, I, I said, uh, I said, Coach, uh, I really want to play college baseball. I thought I was going to be a basketball player. That's not working out. Can you help me find a place to play? He said, I will. So he said, uh, he came up to me about a week later and said, hey, we're playing in this tournament in Paducah, Kentucky. And Coach Johnny Reagan from Murray State is going to be there to watch you pitch on Friday night. And Coach Reagan was one of the premier baseball coaches in the country at that time. And Murray had a great baseball program. They probably had the best program in the state in that era. And I'd had some, uh, some, some other guys from Edison County had gone down there to play baseball, so I was familiar with them. So anyway, Friday night gets there, comes up, and we're down at, at Old Brook Stadium. It's an old minor league park. And I'm thinking I'm big time because they ha actually have a grass infield. And, and – um, so I'm supposed to – this is on a – no, I'm supposed to pitch on Saturday night, and this is on a Friday night, and I'm not a good enough hitter to play, so I'm just kind of waiting my turn the next night. Well, we had a, like a 9-1 to one lead against Greensburg, and uh, so we start losing that lead. And towards the end of the game, my Legion coach says, Keith, get loose. So I go down and start warming up, and I'm thinking, why am I – getting loose tonight I'm supposed to pitch tomorrow night and coach Reagan's going to watch me and I don't know whether I was upset or mad or what I started throwing gas down there in the bullpen and so sure enough we blow the lead and the scores nine to nine in the ninth inning and they call me in the game and listen to this now the bases are loaded and it's the bottom of the ninth no outs so if I walk the guy we lose a game if he gets a hit we lose a game there's a Hundred ways you can lose a baseball game in that situation. First pitch I threw, Oscar, was right at the guy's head. <laughs> and he ducked, and the ball hit his bat. Foul ball. I proceeded to strike that guy out, and the game goes – I strike the next two guys out. The game goes into extra innings. And I, and I had another night like I did my last game I pitched for my high school team. And I struck nine guys out in a row, and we ended up winning the game. 
But I was a little disappointed at the end of the game, even though we won, because I thought, man, Coach Reagan was going to be here tomorrow night. He didn't get to see me pitch. So my Legion coach came up to me and congratulated me and, and all that. And he said, hey, I know you're disappointed because uh, Coach Reagan wasn't here tonight, but there's two guys standing over there by the dugout that want to meet you. And uh, I walk over there, and one guy was a scout for the Atlanta Braves, and the other guy was a scout for the Montreal Expos. And they gave me these little information cards. And I remember after the game going to, to a Jerry's restaurant in Paducah, going to the payphone, calling my dad and saying, Dad, you're not going to believe this. I actually met two pro scouts tonight. And, and they, they wanted me to fill out these little cards. I, I didn't know that they did that to hundreds of players every summer. You just knew they did it to you. They, yeah, <laughs> and I was really, really excited. So uh, that following week I get home, and uh, this scout for the Expos, Hillman Lyons, he was, he was from Murray, Kentucky, actually. Uh, he, called, he called my dad and said, hey, I saw your son pitch, and I'd love to come up and talk to you about uh, him signing with the Montreal Expos. I tell you what, you, you would have thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was the most unbelievable thing. So he comes up, and uh, and I was afraid. I was only 17 years old as a, as a high school graduate, and so uh, my dad had to sign for me, my, and I was afraid he wouldn't do it because he wanted me to go to college. So, But when the scout said, hey, we will pay – for his tuition wherever he wants to go to school. When he said that, that's when my dad started getting interested. So to make a long story just a little bit longer, <laughs> uh, I, I, ended up, I ended up signing with the Expos. It was midsummer, and the draft was over. I signed as a free agent. This is in between your senior year and your freshman year in college. That's right. And so I, I uh, the scout wisely said, hey, you're young and – the summer's, you know, halfway over. Why don't you go to school wherever you want to go to school for a year, and then we'll start you in a rookie league the following year. So I got to go. I, I chose Western because it was close to home. My sister was going there. And so I went to full year of school, reported to Bradenton, Florida, at Pirate City for the Gulf Coast League. There were four teams that stayed there in Pirate City, and we played rookie ball. We'd practice in the morning, have a lousy lunch for uh, soup and the apple or whatever for lunch, and then we would play a game in the afternoon. We did that every day. So um, that's that's uh, that's what I did. So how many years did you play minor league ball? I played five years. I played three years – or excuse me, two years in the Expos organization. Uh, I actually made it to Triple A my second year with the Expos. Uh, really, really had a, a, a great start to my second season, and they bumped me up from Class A ball to Triple A. And also, I got to be honest with you, that was during the Vietnam War, and there were a lot of guys in the National Guard, so there was a shortage of players. So that helped me get bumped up quicker. Uh, and then uh, had an injury. Uh, had a had an arm injury. Didn't they didn't have MRIs and all that back then? Went to spring training that following year and couldn't break a pane of glass. It was sad, and I got released. And so when the Expos released me, uh, I was miserable. I called up a guy by the name of Larry Doty, 
who scouted for the Reds and eventually became the general manager for the Pirates. But uh, I'd known him um, and called him up and said, look, I, I, I want another shot. I'm miserable. I, I can't believe my, as a, you know, 19 or 20, whatever I was then, can't believe my career's already over. He gave me another shot. The Reds signed me, made it back to AAA with the Reds and after a couple of years and had a knee injury, tore my ACL playing basketball in the offseason. So that, that's, that was the five years of, of a very average minor league career. Tell me about the night that you almost lost your wife to a <laughs> Cincinnati Red player from Lexington. Well, uh, after I got released from the Expos, uh, I'd been dating Sharon, my, my wife now of 45 years. And so uh, we decided, hey, we're, let's go ahead and get married. And so we were going to get married in August. Well, lo and behold, I get a chance to play for the Reds. They signed me, and I said, the only thing I want in my contract that's unusual is I need a week off in August to get married. And they, they got it down to, you know how tight the Reds are. They were then especially, but they got it down to five days. They gave me five days off to get married. So uh, we, you know, I go back to Bowling Green, and Sharon and I get married, and we go I report back to Tampa, first game that Sharon, first pro baseball game Sharon ever seen was the night that we got back to Tampa. So I, I happened to pitch that night, and when I get out of the shower and dress, I come out of the locker room, Oscar, and our buddy, Doug Flynn, is trying to pick my wife up. Now, what do you think about a guy? And he swore. He was always a caring individual. <laughs> so we laugh about that so much now. And and, uh, and Doug will tell you, he'll be the first to tell you, if she'd have had any sense, she would have gone out with me. <laughs> you're, you, you leave Western and you're at Mississippi State as a grad assistant. Right. There was a stop between after I, after I graduated from Western. The year I, I got released by the Reds after I messed my knee up, uh, I got a job at Lake Wales, Florida, coaching the Lake Wales High School. I was assistant basketball coach, assistant baseball coach my first year. <clears throat> and so um, the guy that was the head baseball coach just happened to have played for Ron Polk at Georgia Southern when Ron coached there. And after that first year, uh, Joe Mangaskill, uh, my friend, the, the head coach, said, hey, you, you need to – you got this pro background and – you're a good pitching guy. You're to you're to try to coach at the college level. Let me call my college coach. So he called Coach Polk, and and uh, he uh, offered me after my second year at Lake Wells. I was the head coach the second year. After the second year, he offered me a graduate assistant position at Mississippi State because he had moved from Georgia Southern to Mississippi State and had started a fabulous program there uh, in Starkville. So that was a big break for me career-wise, to get to work for Ron Polk, who at that time was probably one of the top three coaches in all of college baseball. So I learned a lot, got my master's degree there. Were, were you planning on leaving there after you got your master's degree? Yeah, I had, I had three options, Oscar. I could either stay there and Ron was going to let me be his pitching coach on a kind of a part-time deal. Or I could have gone back to Lake Wales High School. They had offered me a, a job called the Dean of Men, which basically meant 
I got to punish all the back then you could still paddle I got to paddle all the guys that got in trouble I didn't really want that job uh, uh, and also I got offered uh, a head coaching job at a junior college and and I wasn't tremendously excited about any of those options you you, you seem to be a guy who always liked part-time stuff <laughs> well, and I, you, I didn't you, have and a you, choice and you love Kentucky yeah I love and Kentucky and it looked like maybe there was a part-time job waiting in Lexington. That's exactly right. I, I remember getting on the bus uh, in Starkville. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let, let, me, let me back up yeah. here just a minute. Yeah. My understanding is is uh, you had made contact with Cliff Hagen about I had sent, the job. I had sent my resume in. I hadn't yes. talked to him. And he asked you for an interview, and he didn't offer you uh, per diem or mileage to come for the interview. No. Here, here's the way that whole thing worked out, Oscar, is uh, so Coach Polk tells me on the bus that day that I'm that, that the Kentucky job's open. He said, send your resume in. I said, Coach, I'm 26 years old. They're not going to hire a 26-year-old. He said, well, it's a part-time position. They <laughs> might. So send your resume in. I'll make a phone call. So meanwhile, I go to the junior college job that had been uh, pretty much offered to me for an interview. And I take Sharon with me, and it's in a small town in southern Illinois. And I'm so excited that I'm going to be a head coach at junior college. So Sharon said, uh, you liked it here? And I said, well, yeah, they got a new field and blah, blah, blah. And she said, there's nothing here but corn. <laughs> so I, I drive back from Illinois to my mom and dad's house, and I'm sitting in my mom and dad's house and I said dad you know what I'm gonna do Sharon didn't like it in Illinois you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna call Cliff Hagen he said you're gonna call Cliff Hagen I said yes sir I'm gonna call Cliff Hagen and see if that job's still open so I was nervous because I knew what a legend he was but I called him I, I, I called him and and I said uh, uh, Barbara Isham put me through to him and uh I said, Mr. Hagen, uh, my name's Keith Madison. Sent my resume in. I think Coach Polk maybe he has called you. He said, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm familiar with your name. Uh, I said, well, I'm in Kentucky, and I was just wondering if I could come up and talk to you about this job while I'm in the state. He said, can you be here at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning? I said, yes, sir. Made the drive from Brownsville, two-and-a-half-hour drive from Brownsville to Lexington. Uh, talked to him, and, and I thought, when I left, I remember thinking, this is really neat. I got to meet Cliff Hagen. Did you ask for his autograph? I almost did. I almost did, seriously. And, uh, I mean, you, you, I mean, Cliff uh, was such – he had such a, a, a charisma and an aura about him, and uh, he looked like a movie star and all that, great athlete, and I really did want to ask him for his <laughs> autograph. So, so, anyway, I get back to Starkville, and not knowing what I'm going to do, and this is a true story. I walk into our little apartment in Starkville. Sharon and I walk in. And when I walk in, the phone's ringing. And I pick it up, and it was Cliff Hagen. And he said, uh, Keith, uh, Cliff Hagen here. Uh, I enjoyed our talk the other day. If you're still interested in a Kentucky job, I'm going to fly you up this time, and we'll do a real interview. So that happened. I go back to Starkville after the interview, he called me again and offered me the job, and I couldn't believe it. I was so thrilled. And I remember going into the living room. The phone was in the kitchen. I go in the living room, 
And I said, Sharon, you're not going to believe this. We're going back to Kentucky. Uh, Mr. Hagan offered me the, the baseball job. She started crying. And Sharon is not a crier. And I said, what is wrong? And she said, I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so I found out I got the job in Kentucky and found out she was pregnant the same moment. I about had a heart attack. So we pack up the U-Haul, head to Lexington. The only people I knew in Lexington were Doug Flynn's and his family because I'd played minor league ball with him, and I had a cousin up here. So they helped us find a place to live, and the rest is history. When you came here, <coughs> what was your first salary? Give us the details. <laughs> or did you even ask what the salary would be? You know, I really didn't ask. But the – Mr. Hagan was very honest with me and said, hey, this is a part-time position. We've never had a full-time baseball coach here. Uh, he said, as a matter of fact, in the past, uh, you know, uh, our assistant basketball coaches have coached baseball, and we've just never made it a full-time position. Are you willing to do that? You know, I was a little nervous about that because my wife was pregnant, and when, there were, when you have a part-time job, there's no benefits. But uh, – I was Such I was as no insurance no no insurance, no retirement nothing 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 it, it was like a stipend uh, so uh, we did that and and thankfully uh, people like Frank Ham and people like that helped us out they hooked us up with doctors that just took care of us I mean uh, if it hadn't been for for people in the community just reaching out and taking care of us we couldn't have made it I mean we were literally eating pork and beans four or five nights a week by the time you got here kentucky had moved from across the field or across from the coliseum on euclid to a place they call the shively complex uh 10 12 years earlier than when you got here right what were what were the facilities like and what kind of a staff were you allowed to put together uh for the program well, I, you know, I'd come from Mississippi State that had this pristine field, beautiful. They had a stadium. They had two full-time assistant coaches. They had four graduate assistant coaches into a situation at Kentucky where the head coach is part-time. The only stipend they had for an assistant coach was a $2,500 graduate assistant type stipend. The field looked like a high school field. It was – Three small sets of bleachers. Uh, the the playing surface was, at best, a good high school playing surface. The press box was a concrete block, uh, blue concrete block, and underneath the you remember it you because you spent some time there. Uh, you had to go up these stairs inside up to this little tiny press box. The dugouts were small. The fence, Oscar. I don't know if you remember the fence. Th th there was a snow fence in left field. And because we had that berm in right field, it was a real steep. For those of you who are old enough to remember Crosley Field and left field, they had the, you know, you had the berm, the slope. But this was a more drastic bank, really, a uh, grass bank. So the field from the left field line went straight into this berm in center field. And the fence ended at the berm, so there was actually a gap between the fence and this berm. So the ground rules were is if, if you hit the ball deep in the center field and the ball rolled up the berm and behind the fence, the center fielder would have to come from behind the fence and throw it into the cutoff point. 
And so I looked at that situation. I said, I, this is strange. We can't be having this. And so I go to Mr. Hagen. I said, Mr. Hagen, can we get a new fence for our outfield? And he said, why do you need a new fence? You've already got one. <laughs> and I, I explained to him. And he said, I don't think we need to do that. So a few weeks later, my left fielder, this, this outfield fence, by the way, was four feet tall. My, my left fielder in an inter-squad game uh, went back for a ball and flipped over that fence, and I thought he was really hurt. He wasn't. So the next day I go into Mr. Hagen's office. I said, Mr. Hagen, we've got an issue here. Uh, I think that fence is dangerous. I'm afraid uh, somebody's going to get hurt flipping over that fence like my left fielder did yesterday, and there might be a lawsuit or something. He said, okay, we'll get you a new fence. <laughs> Your, your first assistant was John Butler? John Butler. He also was a Mississippi State uh, graduate assistant. Uh, he had coached high school ball in Georgia. He's originally from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, played for, uh, for Fort Lauderdale High School. And, uh, Oscar, we inherited a situation where, uh, and I'm sure you remember this, uh, the players were unhappy with the previous coach, and they had actually signed a petition and taking it into Cliff Hagen's office. Every player signed it except for one player uh, that they wanted a new coach. And so uh, to th th it was an ugly situation. So I thought – and I didn't know about that until I got on campus and I, I, I've been hired. So I thought not only do we have poor facilities and I have a part-time salary, I got a rebellious group of guys to coach. So that was a tough situation, but John was a great help in that and and we were we were a good team because John and I complemented each other I was more of a recruiter visionary uh, motivator John was a very organized very disciplined uh, knowledgeable coach and so uh, we we really had a great run there the, the facility you talked about that you saw when you got here how would you describe them as compared to the other nine schools in the SEC at the time? Uh, dead last by easy dead last. Uh, Mississippi State probably at that time had the best facility, and then probably uh, probably Florida was behind them. And uh, that's when they first started actually building stadiums on campus. So it was it was by far the worst. We, we were <laughs> – and I, I wouldn't say these things back in the day except to good friends like you but uh, because I didn't want it to hurt me in recruiting, but we were dead last in facilities, dead last in budget, dead last in weather. We had a lot of things going against us. And the team the year before broke the school record for losses. So we, we came into many, a tough situation. How many games did you play back then? We played um, – we played about 50. I think I think the league the, the league rule was that you could play 50. I think it was 50 games. The interesting thing about that is that there was no NCAA rule about how many games you could play. I know some schools played a lot more than that yeah. in the deep south. The deep south. Like every day. <laughs> yeah, Texas, uh, USC, uh, they played over 80 games back then. It, and that, that was a kind of an average thing for them. So – we were limited to the number of games we could play. Uh, so we, we had a lot of things going against us. But you know what? This, that team was an awesome group of young men. They were so hungry to win. We broke the school record for wins that first year. 
you you get here and you start working. I assume in August, September. That's right. First year. Tell me what it was like when you got up the morning of your first home game, the next spring. Walk me through the park and what it was like as a head coach for the first time. Uh, I, I was. To be very, very honest with you, I was excited, I was nervous, I was anxious, I was uh, a little bit overwhelmed because I was 20, when I got here I was 26 years old and by the time the season rolled around I was 27, so I was a 27 year old head coach that had only coached really for three years, two years at Lake Wales and one year at Mississippi State. So I'm not sure I felt confident as a coach. I knew baseball, but that's there's a difference in knowing baseball and being able to coach it. Uh, and plus, I was a pitcher, so that's why John Butler was such a big help to me because he was an outfielder, and he I, I basically gave him the offensive part of the game, the hitting, the base running, and he and I teamed up on the defense, and I and I handled the pitchers. So. It was a, you know, once I got into it, uh, it was it was a blast. Uh, I remember, I remember. Did you win that first game? Yes, I believe. I'm pretty sure it was against Georgetown College. I think. I think it was who it was, and so we won. And that, you know, when, uh, you know how in the Bible it says that love covers a multitude of sin, winning covers a multitude of fear. <laughs> so, you know, when you win that first, when you kind of get the confidence and. It, it, it helped a lot. Talk a little bit about the season that year and how you juggled the balls in recruiting and what the first reaction was of Keith Madison by recruits, both in-state and out-of-state. That was that was really interesting. I was calling Ron Polk three or four times a week, just getting advice and, and hey, how do you do this? You know, when you go out recruiting, what, you know, all this stuff. So uh, – Quick story here, Oscar. Uh, you remember uh, my friend Steve Hamilton that coached at Moorhead State University. Uh, one of my first things that I did when I got to Kentucky is I started scheduling games for the following spring, and I noticed that Moorhead State's not on the schedule. Why, why? You know, it's 60 miles away. Why are we not playing Moorhead State? And I'd heard of Steve Hamilton, and I wanted to play him. So uh, I gave Coach Hamilton a call. And he said, Keith, we're not, uh, not going to play Kentucky this year. And I said, Coach, i I got to ask you why. I said, you know, we're willing to go home and home. We'll come up to your place and you can come to our place. And he said, yeah, we've always done it that way, but um, I didn't like the way we were treated the last time we came to Kentucky. I just don't want to go through that again. I won't go into the details about what happened. But he said, uh, we're just not going to do that. So I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I, you don't know me. But I promise you this, you'll be treated fairly and you'll be treated with respect if you come to Kentucky and play. And he, he, he didn't say a word. It was just dead silent on the other end. It seemed like forever, but it was just a few seconds. And finally he said, Keith, we'll do it. Let's, let's work it out. So then we started talking. And back to your question about recruiting, he said, hey, are you going to the uh, Legion tournament over in Jeffersonville, Indiana, uh, later on this week? And I said, no, I can't go. He said, why not? I said, well, I, I looked at our budget, and we don't have any money left in our budget for recruiting. <laughs> and he said, wait a minute, what was the budget? 
the budget for recruiting, I think I think we got five thousand dollars or something like that for the year to recruit. <laughs> and you're talking a motel. I'm surprised it was that much. Yeah, forty years it ago. Might, I, I think that's what it was. And so he said, "I'll tell you what." He said, uh, uh, "I'm going over. Why don't I just stop by and pick you up in Lexington, and you can stay in my room." And we're talking Steve Hamilton, a former New York Yankee lefty. I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so he picked me up, and all the way from Lexington to Jeffersonville, where I'm asking questions about Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra and <laughs> all the guys he played for. I'm, I'm now, in. don't tell me <laughs> that you got two strikes on you and didn't ask for his autograph either. <laughs> no, I thought that might look bad, but. But we, we just had a ball, and, I, and he probably thought, who is this kid asking me all these questions? So he so th there were two or three times that summer that he would call me up and he said, hey, I'm going to Cincinnati, ride with me. And so he, he that's the kind of guy he was. He was helping out the Kentucky coach. And we, we became great friends. Your first, in your mind, your first big-time recruiting success. Jeff Keener. St. Louis Cardinals. And I, yes, Jeff Keener and Jeff Parrott. Those are my first two. I'm, I'm going to put them together. Because uh, Jeff Parrott was a local kid. And so there was a lot, of, a lot of people unhappy here because they thought that some of the good Lexington players were going to other schools to play. And I felt like Jeff Parrott was a very important sign for me. Uh, he was at Lafayette High School, and uh, so I, we were able to sign Jeff Parrott. Then the next year, I think, yeah, no, maybe it was the same year we signed Jeff Keener. Both guys ended up becoming major league pitchers. So th those were really big signs. I thought they, I thought they, they really kind of made a difference in the program. Personally, was it more difficult? to recruit a pitcher or a hitter? I think it was, for me, it was more difficult to recruit a hitter, even though we had a hitter's park, because, because of Coach Polk's help and, and because I had pitched in the Reds organization and all that, I had a reputation of being a good pitching coach. So the good hitters are saying, why would I want to go to Kentucky? That guy's a pitching guy. So that the hitters were more of a challenge for me. Did did recruits then and perhaps even now look at the park as where it's hitter friendly or pitcher friendly? They looked at it definitely as a hitter friendly park, and so I had to convince the pitchers that I was recruiting, "Hey, I know how to help you get these guys out in this ballpark," and I and I did. I had a plan for them, and and if they if they could execute the plan, it would work. I think of guys like Paul Kilgus and Jeff Parrott and those guys. Uh, so, what happens, Oscar, when left-handed hitters come into the ballpark, and it's still today, when they come into Cliff Hagen Stadium today, they look at that right field fence, 310 down the right field line, and their eyes get as big as saucers. And so, what happens is that swing gets a little bit long, and when a swing gets long, it's a little bit slower. So, I would tell, hey, it, it, it kind of goes against what you would think. I would tell them to pitch inside to lefties. And we jammed so many left-handed hitters because their swing had gotten long. Now, if you got the ball out over the plate a little bit, they could launch it over there in that practice football field. So, uh, and then 
that helped our hitters because they knew, hey, the, and here's another thing about Cliff Hagen Stadium and Nick Mangione and those guys know it very, very well, is that if you hit the ball in left center in that ballpark, it jumps out because the wind usually blows out to left center. So everybody gets that right field fence in their eyes, but if you, you know, if you play gap to gap and hit the ball in the gaps, you're going to actually do better. At then as now, baseball seems to be the uh, redhead stepchild in the family when it comes to scholarships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a. Th- you've known me for so long, you know that's a little bit of a sore spot for me. It's interesting to me that college baseball has gotten so much more popular in terms of fans, bigger stadiums. The College World Series is huge. ESPN, it's a big deal. But yet, college baseball players at the Division I level, at the SEC level, ACC, uh, Big 12, those kids pay to play. That bothers me a little bit. They pay to play while others get paid to play. That's right. Uh, and, you know, a good scholarship in baseball, if, if a kid gets 40% or something or 50%, that's a really good scholarship. So a, is that difficult, given that factor, to recruit against, say, the Northwesterns, the Vanderbilts, the Duke schools that has a very high tuition rate? No question. I. And, and what schools like Stanford and Vanderbilt have done is they, they have done a beautiful job, and I applaud them for it, of utilizing their academic scholarships and the uh, endowments. Uh, for instance, we'll, we'll probably talk about Mike Messina a little bit later, but Mike Messina went to Stanford on a full scholarship, academic scholarship, because there was an endowment in Pennsylvania where he's from if you go to Stanford and if you have these academic standards, you go on a full ride. Well, you know, I offered him 70-something percent, which was the biggest scholarship I offered anybody that year. I couldn't match him going to Stanford on a full ride. So there's a lot of inequities in baseball scholarships, and it's really unfair. Plus, I mean, you, you put a family in a situation. Uh, let's say a kid grows up in Kentucky, and the only scholarship I have available is is 30%, and then Tennessee has 60% available, and they offer the kid 60%, and the family says, you you must not really like my son very much (laughs) because you're only offering 30%, and Tennessee's offering 60%. So they get offended. That's a tough recruiting sale, and they don't want to hear, hey, that's all the money I have left in my budget. I can't offer him more. There's none there. Let's go through the 80s your career and the UK program and how it evolved. You, you, you did have a couple improvements to Shively over the years, but let's talk about some of the teams that you had and how different it was in the SEC going from a 10-team, two-division league to a 10-team, one-division league. At, at a couple points in time, you had like number – the winner and the runner-up of each division had a four-team playoff. But sometimes the third team in one of those divisions could be the second-best team in the whole league. That's true. But not any. And the NCAA was always reluctant during those periods not to invite a team that didn't make the league playoffs. Yeah. As a matter of fact, in that era, Oscar, they never 
picked a team that didn't make the SEC tournament. Uh, but you're right. It was, you know, it was tough. It was, first of all, tough just to get in the SEC tournament when they're only picking four teams. But that, you know, going back to 79, that first team, uh, you know, we that was a great, great group of guys. And I'll never, ever forget that team because they went from same team, except we had, we added uh, Mike Bakken. Uh, local boy. Local boy, Lexington Catholic. And uh, we you know, the year before in 78, they broke the school record for losses. Then we broke the school record for wins with basically the same team adding Mike Bakken. So that was a special team. The next really special team was in 81 uh, when I had almost all of my players that we had recruited. Uh, and we still had people like Jim Leopold from the previous coaching staff. That was – he was a great player. But we uh, – you know, we made the we made the tournament in '79, which was a big deal to go from last place to making the SEC tournament. In '81, uh, we had a great year, and uh, that's when Jeff Keener uh, really blossomed. And uh, a guy named Danny Petoskey played second base, all conference infielder. So we made the tournament that year, and really, I thought was probably one of the top. 12 or 15 teams in the nation. But for whatever reason, you know, we won 39 games and finished second in our division and didn't get a bid to play in the NCAA regionals. It was heartbreaking. How many teams were in the NCAA total at that time? 14. Of course, you have – I mean, 48. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, you, um, you you have the automatic berth, you know. The were those eight, 16 – Rounds at that time they were four team tournaments. Okay. A little bit later they went to sixteen, which was really hard. Uh, and then uh, so yeah, the eighty one team was very good and they didn't get a chance. Jeff Keener was th these numbers are unbelievable, uh, but he was thirteen and one with a zero point five one earn run average. How did, how did how did you guys travel back then? Bus, car, train. Vans. Vans. Yeah. We, we and here's just to just to kind of paint a picture of what that looked like. Today they fly now a lot of times. Yes, yeah, they do. And and that's awesome that they can do that. Uh and I always think of Georgia because um I, I remember going to Georgia in seventy nine or eighty, one of those years, in vans. We took four vans. So now think about this. Two two assistant coaches. Who's gonna drive the other vans? So we had to get a manager or maybe a senior, and and everybody seemed to be okay with that. <laughs> so, drive down to Athens, Georgia, uh, and on a Friday play a doubleheader on Saturday. But this particular year, I think it was eighty, we get rained out, so we have to play a doubleheader on Sunday. So you go out to the park, you know, two and a half, three hours early for batting practice, infield practice, all those kinds of things rain delay so we don't get out of Athens until five or six o'clock in the afternoon after playing a double header now we have to drive all the way back to Lexington in those vans that's that was and and I and I might I might add on a part-time salary <laughs> uh, speaking of part-time at what point in time did that get improved well, my salary got bumped up the third year, uh, 81, which was a great year for us on the field, but still not 
full-time status. In order to be a full-time employee, you have to get benefits, and they still weren't giving me benefits. It wasn't until a few years later that I can't remember exactly what year uh, that I started getting the, the, the benefits that full-time employees got. And But you know what? I, it sounds like I'm bitter. I'm not because I'm thankful that Cliff Hagen gave a 26-year-old Kentucky boy a chance to coach at the university that he had grown up just loving his entire life. That's that was a big, big deal for me. And and yeah, would I've liked to have made the same money that other coaches made? I would, but this sounds crazy. But money wasn't that important to me. And the fact of the matter is, if the money had been there, they probably wouldn't have given it to a 26-year-old That's true. coach without experience. That's right. I would not have gotten a shot. Now, I do remember, <clears throat> I think it I think it was 80 or 81, uh, Western Kentucky offered me the job. And the, it, the salary was almost tripled at Western compared to Kentucky. I heard they didn't have a Springs Motel lunch, though. They didn't. That's right. They didn't have a Springs <laughs> Motel lunch. And – but, uh, so, but, you know, I turned that down to stay at Kentucky because I loved it here, and I knew things were going to get better. I knew they were going to get better. Plus, I had friends taking me to the Springs Motel for lunch. <laughs> Can't beat that. We get up into the mid-late 80s. Two of your – certainly your two best back-to-back years. Uh, everybody talks about 88 because you were literally one out from going to the College World Series. Take me to that season and then go back and let's go back into the 87 season, which I think you think was actually better than 88 team. Yeah, that's right. 88 season was a very, very special year because we, we actually got off to a rough start and we didn't play well early. And uh, we uh, I remember the chairman of the selection committee telling me that we needed to beef up our non-conference schedule because I'd complained about not, not getting – an NCAA tournament bid in 81, and then I thought we deserved one in 87, and we didn't get it. So I beefed up our schedule. So we go to Oklahoma State to play, and Oklahoma State was like one of the top three programs in the nation at that time. As a matter of fact, Robin Ventura was on the team that year. So we go out there to play, <coughs> and we got drubbed. I mean, we got – plus my number one pitcher, from uh, Matt Coleman from Pikeville, Kentucky, uh, he got hit – in his middle throwing hand by line drive, and it broke his middle finger. So I lose my number one pitcher uh, on that trip in March. And uh, then the following weekend, we go to LSU to play our first conference uh, series. And so I told the guys, I, I still remember this, I, I said, guys, we, you know, we're underachieving. We can't do that. We go to Oklahoma State and, and, and we get drubbed. I said, we're starting conference. This is a brand new season. We're playing at LSU. We got to turn this thing around. I remember we we beat LSU two out of three, and that started it. And we had a great run, and played great throughout conference play. We did get a bid, and uh, at that time, Oscar, it was that six-team regional that you were talking about. Double Clint, elimination. Double elimination. Clemson was the number one seed. They were the number two team in the nation. We played them uh, and beat them. We beat St. John's. I think it was Fordham, the other team we beat. And Stanford had lost a game, so they had to beat us twice. 
And unfortunately, that's exactly what they did. Stanford had won the national championship the year before, uh, but they ran a guy by the name of Mike Messina out on the mound, and he was very, very good. I, I remember uh, we had an All-American shortstop named Billy White, and he came to the dugout, and he said, Coach, from the dugout, doesn't look like he's throwing that hard, but he said, when you're up there with the bat, it gets on you really quick. And so Messina was a special, very special pitcher. And had a great career for the Yankees. In 89-90 era through there, C.M. Newton come aboard as athletic director. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a sort of a big baseball fan, he seemed to have taken a different approach as to the future of the baseball program at Kentucky. He did. You know, he uh, as you mentioned, he played baseball here at Kentucky and ended up playing in the Yankees organization, and he liked baseball. Uh, it was a different approach. Um, he immediately uh, elevated salaries on the staff. He elevated uh, the budget. Uh, he also um, let it be known that, hey, we want to help you any way we can to improve the facilities. And it was a it, it, it was encouraging for sure, uh, and we we'd come off you know that '88 team and, and the '87 team, which I you and I talked about earlier, was was even a better team than than the '88 team. We won uh, I think won 41 games in '87. We had Terry Shumpert and Mitch Knox. We had Rod Bolton who pitched in the big leagues. Uh, you know Terry played for the Royals and other people in the big leagues. Plus, we had all those guys that did so well in 88, Billy White, Vince Castaldo, Darren Riemann, Mark Blythe, Robbie Buchanan. That was a great team, a great era. And so, CM saw that, and he, and he told me, he said, I can't believe you guys have been this successful with part-time assistant coaches, limited scholarships, less facilities. He said, I want to help you. And he did for a while. It, it looked like during that time, late 80s, early 90s, coming on the heels of 87, 88, that things were going to come together, perhaps even a new stadium, uh, a lot of optimism, but all of a sudden it sort of just leveled out again. How disappointing was that? It was it was crushing, to be honest with you, because I thought that with CM being a, you know, a former baseball player that he would really want to want to help us keep keep the pace up with the rest of the league. And what was happening then, Oscar, we have to look at what was going on in the league then in terms of baseball. That's when uh, the stadiums really, people started getting great facilities. The the coaching hires were, they were paying coaches better. Uh, Teams started showing up in the College World Series. All of a sudden, the South was displacing particularly the West Coast. That's exactly right. Uh, Before then, the, the West Coast was where, you know, most of the national champions came from the West Coast. USC, UCLA, Stanford, uh, Arizona State, uh, Arizona, all those teams. So uh, it was a time when the SEC was making this huge statement in, in, in a lot of sports, but in particular baseball, I think. And we just stayed at the same level. Uh for instance, my assistant coaches were still part-time. Uh, our facilities were still ranked last in the league. 
and I don't know whether it was my lack of salesmanship or charisma. I don't know what it was. We couldn't seem to get we couldn't seem to get the administration ex- as excited about baseball as they were in other schools in the league. It, it seemed like obviously budget was a big issue. Yeah, but we, yet we, we we had money. I mean, UK has money. Yeah, but as far as putting it together. For one sport, you also had Title Nine that was really in there at that time. That's too. true. That's very and true. And you were having spread. But looking forward to next year and a new, roughly fifty million dollar project going on, would we be seeing that if the SCC network had not come along with this extra thirty, forty million dollars a year? That's made. That's been. I know it's been publicized and everything, but that's probably one of the most significant changes, I think, that I've seen in Southeastern Conference sports. It's, it's amazing. I look at the, at the money they have now. And, 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 you know, we've always had the bowl money and all that kind of stuff, but the TV stuff, it's been, it's been unreal. Even to the point now, suddenly, you can sit down at night and hook your Internet up to your big screen. Exactly. And watch – any baseball, any SEC baseball game being played live. I watched You eight. probably can count on your yeah. hand how many you had oh, televised. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched eight SEC baseball games this weekend. And my wife asked me this question, do you ever get tired of baseball? The answer is no, I love it. <laughs> so, But, you know, you, you mentioned um, uh, the big screen and, and not not getting to see teams play very much. Uh, I I remember when Bo Jackson was playing for Auburn. Uh, we were going to go down to Auburn, and it was the ESPN. At first time Kentucky had ever played on ESPN. And it was because of Bo Jackson. Of, that's right. It was because of Bo Jackson. Part two with Coach Keith Madison will be available in an upcoming episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. For more with Keith Madison, you can follow him on Twitter at KeithMadison32. And check out his website, CoachKeithMadison.com to get an insight with his work with Score International. All of Oscar's podcasts are available online through oscarcombs.com, and, of course, they're available on your mobile device. Search for at Wildcat News in both the Google Play Store and in iTunes and subscribe for free. When you subscribe, podcasts are automatically downloaded to your mobile device and ready for you to listen 24-7. I'm Bo Robinson, and thank you for listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's, and as always, go Big Blue.